you guys. Uh, I have to leave early because it's my wife's birthday and we're having a surprise party. So I just didn't want you to think it was like a, a personal thing against you guys. But, uh, but anyway, I'm going to talk to you today about this sprint process. And my job is a design partner at Google Ventures. So I work with, with startups and using design to try to help them solve problems. And the, the problems that startups face, like you guys are pretty familiar with, right? You see a business opportunity, and it doesn't really matter if you're at a startup or if you're leading a team at a larger company. When you have a business opportunity, there's a lot of different ways you can take advantage of it. There's all these different ideas, right? And some of those might be a big business if you do it right. Some of them are sort of worth pennies on the dollar. And there's a few ideas that are like actively dangerous. If you do the wrong thing, your company might go out of business when you launch it. But in the beginning, you don't know. And because you don't know, it's, it's hard to be sure which idea is the right one to build, which way is the right way to take your idea, your vision, and make it fit in the real world. So do you guys know the reason why we're all here is that it's a smart idea to pick one of those approaches and get some data about it as fast as you can. Now, the way that most of the startups that, that I work with apply this approach is to build something and launch it as fast as they can. So they can get the product out in the real world, and they can start to get some data on it. The trouble is that building things often takes a little longer than they think it's gonna take, and because when you're setting out, you sometimes know that things are gonna take a little longer, teams often argue about what's the right way to go, they're worried about what's gonna happen, even when they launch that minimal product, because it can be hard to bring a minimal product back. So sometimes people play a little safe, and, and even with an MVP, they won't be as bold and as risky as they might otherwise be. The idea with this design sprint process is to basically shrink that whole loop down and build and test a prototype in just five days, which is, is really fast, it's really fast. But the way we do that is to, you know, you look at the, the regular calendar that most of us have, and it looks probably something like this, right? So on your team, you're gonna see uh, meetings from you know, a status meeting from project A, and then a meeting to make a decision about project B, and then a brainstorm meeting for project C, and there's one-on-ones, and if you wanna get anything done, you gotta kinda wind your way through this obstacle course of meetings. So the idea with the sprint is to, for the whole team, clear the whole schedule for that week, and in the design sprint, the whole team is gonna focus on one problem. You start at the, at the beginning when the problem is just, you're just setting out and trying to figure out which direction to point before you've built a single thing. And by Thursday of that week, you'll build a prototype. And then on Friday, you test it with your real target customers. You see how they react. So when I say sprint, that's, that's specifically what I'm talking about. And we've done this a bunch of times, probably nearly 150 times now with the startups in our portfolio. I'm gonna tell you a story about one of those sprints so you can kind of see how it works. Uh, this company that I want to tell you about is called Savioke, and Savioke makes a hotel delivery robot. So the robot is a little bit shorter than this lectern right here, and it's got a little hatch on the top. So you could open it up, put in a toothbrush at the front desk, close it, type in, you know, room 319, and then the robot, it's got sensors and everything. It, it could drive on its own, and it would drive over to the elevator, wirelessly call the elevator, get on, ride the elevator with people, get off at the third floor and go to the room, and then when it gets to the room, it's got a map in its robot head of the floor, and it gets to room 319, it triggers a phone call, and then the person opens the door, it senses the door's open, the hatch opens, and there's the toothbrush. 
So it's kind of cool. And they had figured out all of the engineering behind making this robot work, which is super, super challenging, and they, they figured it out. But they had a big question. It's like, how should this robot behave? So I don't know about you guys, but I find elevators awkward with humans only. And if you added a robot into the mix, I don't know. I could, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brave new world. So they wanted to get this right. And as you can imagine, being a startup, building a, a capital-intensive thing like a big piece of hardware and trying to launch it out in the real world, and knowing that as soon as there was a hotel delivery robot, there were going to be stories in the news, people were going to be posting reviews on Yelp involving the robot, they had to get it exactly right. And they were concerned because we're spoiled. We're all of us spoiled by Wally -E and C3PO. Science fiction has got us convinced that robots have thoughts and plans and hopes and dreams. And, and the trouble is, if you guys have ever talked to you know, Siri or the Google Assistant, you know that like, it's really hard to have a conversation with a computer in 2015, 16. So if people tried to talk to the robot, if they thought I can have a conversation or I can ask it to do something, they were bound to get frustrated, disappointed. And the last thing that Savioc could afford was for negative reviews to affect the orders for the robot. So they were planning to play it safe, give it no personality whatsoever. But they had all these ideas about how personality might work. They thought it would be closer to their vision as a company if they could give it a personality and they decided to, to test it in a sprint. So we got to, to be involved in the sprint, which is pretty cool, and it's, I got behind the scenes photos to show you guys. Anyway, in the sprint, they were going to go from this prototype of the robot to testing the personality in the hotel in just five days. And here's kind of how it went down. On Monday, and we do the same set series of activities in every sprint, on Monday, the team gets together. And the team is not just a special creative team who's together just to do this one-time event. It's, a, it's a, the real team who's going to be working on the product. And we don't want just designers and engineers. We want a broad set of skills. So in the Savvy Oak Sprint, we've got the, the chief marketing officer who knows everything about the way the hotels work. And we've got the CEO who can make the decision about which ideas we should test. They brought the robot actually into the office, and this is a picture of it. You can see they've got it hidden under a tablecloth, as though a ghost would be less conspicuous than a, than a robot. But they brought it inside, and we fell in love with it right away. This is the first, I think, hotel robot selfie ever taken by yours truly. So we got the robot in there, and everybody's sharing what they need to know. And the first thing we do on Monday in the sprint is to, is to make a map of the whole problem space. That seems like a really simple thing, but most teams have a lot of assumptions about what other people in the team think. They think that their view is the view everyone shares. And there's information that they're missing. You know, they, they might not know what the hotel expert knows about, about things. So we get all this up on the board. And then Steve, the CEO, chooses a target. So it's important to have one target in the sprint because we don't have much time. So he chooses the moment of delivery. So if you could imagine a guest getting into the hotel room and calling for a delivery and not knowing there was going to be a robot when they opened the door, that could be delightful, it could be amazing, it could be totally awesome, but it could also be super awkward and uncomfortable. They totally had to get that moment right. So that was the spot we were going to try to solve for and try to test. So on Tuesday of every sprint, we come up with solutions. The usual way that a team of people will come up with solutions is to do a group brainstorm. It just doesn't work well. I've got to say, it's not work well. I've done a lot of group brainstorms, and 
It's kind of like eating a bowl full of Halloween candy. It's like super fun at the time, and then the next day, just, you know, hangover. So what we do in a sprint is individual work. Each person in the sprint will come up with their own very detailed solution. They'll make it anonymous so we don't know whose is whose. We don't have any biases about who's smarter or who's been on the team longer. And by the end of the day, we've got an array of competing solutions, different ways of solving the problem. And on Wednesday, we've got to decide. We don't have the whole group decide. We don't do a sort of a watered down, let's make it fit with everybody's opinion. We just have one decision maker, in this case, Steve, the CEO, make the call. So he chooses three ideas. First idea, what if the robot could play games with people? Follow the leader, hide and seek. What if the robot had a face? And this is like kind of an obvious one, but also the riskiest thing. If you don't want people to talk to the robot, to give it a face really suggests like maybe you can talk to me. And then what if the robot did a dance after the delivery? I'll go on the record to saying I didn't think it was such a hot idea, but anyway, this is the third idea. So now it's Thursday. We've got one day to build the prototype, and that's actually by design. I think that in one day, you can make a realistic facade of pretty much any product. So for our eight-hour prototype for the robot, we start out, and we've got basically taking all the different tasks and dividing them up among the team. So one person's doing sound effects. These guys are working on the face of the robot, and they're just using Keynote to design the face, putting the Keynote file onto an iPad mini. They popped the panel off the front of the, the prototype robot and stuck the panel on there. It looked like there's a digital face on the robot, but it's just Keynote slides in full screen. Now, normally, the robot drives on its own. It's got sensors. It's figuring out where to go. But to just make five deliveries, which is all we needed to test it on Friday, we just did manual override mode. So here you can see Tessa, the CTO of Savio, and she's got a PlayStation remote driving the robot. So on Friday, we run the test. And we always test with five customers. You can, you can get the book if you want to know why five is enough for this kind of test. In this case, we want to test with people in a real hotel. So my colleague, another design partner at GV, Michael, he comes to do the test. He comes to the hotel. It's a photo of him in the hotel. He brings his suitcase in. And in his suitcase, he's got all kinds of stuff, cameras and tripods, extension cords, duct tape, and basically rigs up a makeshift research lab in the computer so that we'll be able to watch from another location and see from all different camera angles how these people react when they're not expecting a robot and a robot shows up. Will they talk to it? What's going to happen? So at 9 AM, the first customer shows up. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who, earlier in the week, responded to an ad on Craigslist and uh, filled out this form. He said, yeah, I'm free in Cupertino on Friday. I'll check this out. He got an email back from Michael, and it said, hey, this is kind of an unusual usability interview. It's going to take place in a hotel. Hope you don't mind. And this is you on Wednesday, and you probably thought, oh, gosh. Oh, it's on Friday. Yeah, sure, I'll check it out. But now it's really, you're, it's Friday. You're there in the hotel lobby. Michael shows up. He says, hey, come with me in the elevator. And then you're in the hotel room with Michael, and there's cameras everywhere. You, <laughs> would, you, would, you, would be, you would be right to feel a little uncomfortable. Now, this is like, this is an extreme example. This is an extreme example of the discomfort of talking to customers. But actually, this idea of showing a prototype to customers makes many of us, myself included, feel uncomfortable. I would be much happier to be you know, alone writing or doing design work. Many people would be happier to be doing engineering. They'd be happier to doing sales calls. And so many teams are much more comfortable with the idea of their minimum product being something they build and launch, because that's what they do. Let's just do that faster. Now, if you behave in this different way, if you build a prototype and you test with people face-to-face, -face, 
you can get data on a, a richer product much, much faster, but it is uncomfortable. So Michael has some tricks. We talk a lot about his tricks in the book. You can see this is a nonstop advertisement for the book. Uh, among his tri tricks are to, well, in this case, wear a badge so people would know he wasn't a, some creepy stalker guy. He was who he said he would be. But he's also got a guide for the interview, so he doesn't have to make it up as he goes. He's got some specific quest questions and some points that he wants to hit. He doesn't have to you know, fumble his way through. Now, meanwhile, we're watching from another location, and we get to see every angle as the robot moves into position and makes a delivery, and we see people react as they get the toothbrush. We're able to see this five times throughout the day. So, fast forward to the future. We saw what would happen if Savvy Oak had a personality in their robot, and it turned out that nobody wanted to play games with the robot, but the face actually worked. People were really excited to see the face. They're like, oh, they marveled at how cute it was, but nobody tried to talk to it. And they actually liked the dance. I'll show you guys. This is some press they got when they launched, and it was, it was great. The reviews were positive. People didn't have that frustration, which was really exciting for Savio because they got that personality they were kind of hoping to do. But here you can actually see the robot dance after the delivery is made. It's kind of the same way that I dance, actually. Um, <laughs> so... So you guys are probably thinking like, hey, look, I don't build robots, cute story dude, but it's not just for robots. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Slack. Some of you probably have. It's a messaging software, if you haven't. And it's for teams of people. And we invested in Slack a couple years ago. They had a lot of early success, the fastest growing business app of all time, with mostly tech companies, though, in the early going. People were hearing about it by word of mouth from friends at other tech companies. And Slack wanted to reach a broader audience, so they decided to launch this big advertising campaign. And I'm talking about like billboards, buses, new, you know, magazine ads. Slack was uh, going to be reaching people who had never heard of the product before, and they were going to be coming to slack.com not knowing what to expect. So they needed to redo their website. They needed to create a marketing experience and a first-time experience that explained the product. And their sprint, I won't tell you the whole story, but they had two big ideas that came out. One that was a favorite of the CEO, one that was a favorite of the product manager. They built two prototypes in one day, so two facades of two different websites. They tested them both. The CEO's idea didn't work as well. The other one worked great. They built it, and they launched. And in fact, now, actually, they have so successful that uh, Microsoft's copying their product, so can't, can't beat it. Um, it's not just for existing products either. This method works quite well for new things. In fact, as you can imagine, with startups, that's kind of where it shines the most. It's a company called Orbital Insight that we invested in. And they take satellite imagery and analyze it, and then they can tell you for a particular, you know, for all the targets around the world, how many cars are in their parking lots day after day after day or for all these ports in the world. How many ships are in those ports day after day after day? They thought that information would be really useful to hedge funds, and they couldn't build the right product without knowing exactly what those hedge funds wanted. So for their prototype, they built a slide deck. They wanted to basically test the sales conversation. And their deck was, hey, what if we built this? What would you do with it? And their customers they interviewed were hedge fund CEOs. So a lot of different ways you can apply this idea depending on what stage you're at, what kind of product you're at. But the forcing function of the week allows you to basically skip the building and launching and get some data that can help you decide which idea is the right one to pursue before you've invested too much time. The real advantage of this, we think as investors, and I hope it'll appeal to you guys too, is that you can be riskier. You don't have to 
be safe. You don't have to argue too much about what the right way to go is. You can take those risks early, and then you can always go and do the broader loop when you're ready. So the book is called Sprint, and there's a bunch of stories like this in it. There's also kind of a DIY guide. There's even these dorky checklists in the back, and you can find out more about it at this website. Thank you guys a lot for your attention.